Greetings and welcome to episode 15 of the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. Careful listeners will know that this is a new name for us. We are rebranding our little show for two reasons. First, we wanted a name that tied more directly to the website and the nonprofit from which this podcast is published. Second, we believe the new name says more immediately to would-be listeners in the pod sphere that, indeed, if they are interested in the well-being of animals, this is the show for them. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, wander on over to animalwellnessaction.org, and you'll find what you're looking for there. Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby are with me today. Wayne is the founder of Animal Wellness Action. Marty is its executive director and chief lobbyist in D.C. Me? Why am I here? Folks, I have the microphone. That's my ticket to admission for this show. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. We are continuing with a topic that, gosh, you can't get away from these days, and that is COVID-19. On this podcast, however, we feel a special connection with the virus and a responsibility to discuss it from multiple angles. This is in part because virtually all reasonable minds acknowledge it came from abuses of animals in the wet markets of Asia. But it's also because, as we are learning more by the day, consequences of the pandemic are affecting the way our animals are being treated here at home, the safety of our farmers, and even what you're able to buy at the market to feed your family. I tweeted a story the other day from the New York Times that talked about how hundreds of thousands of pigs are having to be gassed and otherwise euthanized owing to the inability of the slaughterhouses to keep up with them because so many workers uh, are not coming to work because of concerns of the virus. And the story went on to discuss the emotional toll uh, this is taking on the farmers themselves. So part of our ongoing examination of the impact of COVID-19 centers around the differences between industrialized farming and the smaller kinds of operations that you might associate with days of yore where more humane practices for the animals involved may have been the norm. Now, to be fair, not everyone on this podcast are involved with animal wellness action eats meat. Some of us don't believe in using animals for any kind of consumptive purposes. But as Wayne instructed me many years ago when he and I first began talking, the main thing is that we ensure animals have one bad day. That if we are going to use animals for consumptive purposes, it ought to be done humanely in a way that honors the animal and the farmer who takes care of of that animal. And we've got a great guest today to talk about that. His name is Will Harris. He leads White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia, and is a fourth-generation cattleman who tends the same land that his great-grandfather settled in 1866. He attended the University of Georgia's School of Agriculture, where he was trained in the industrial farming methods that had taken hold after World War II. Graduated in 1976, he returned to White Oak, where he and his father continued to raise cattle using pesticides, herbicides, hormones, and antibiotics. Good grief, Will. If you'd thrown a little crack cocaine in there, I don't know if you'd have done any worse. They also fed their herd a high-carbohydrate diet of corn and soy. Eventually, Will became disenchanted with the excesses of those industrialized methods and sought to return to the farming methods his great-grandfather had used in the late 1800s. Nature abhors a monoculture, he said, referring to the modern farming paradigm he was abandoning. 
Since then, he has been recognized all over the world as a leader in humane animal husbandry and environmental sustainability. He is the immediate past president of the board of directors of Georgia Organics and is the beef director of the American Grass-Fed Association. In 2011, he was honored as the Business Person of the Year for Georgia by the Small Business Administration. So, Will, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really grateful. Thank you for having me, Joseph. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. Yeah, and, and for folks listening to the podcast, you can, you can hear that wonderful that wonderful Georgian accent, and um, we're recording this on Zoom where I can see the man. And let me tell you, you'd have to go to Central Casting to find anyone that looks more like uh, a cattle farmer uh, than than Will. So, Will, it's it's a pleasure to to hear you and look at you, man. You 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 got it going on. Um, I know Wayne and Marty have a lot of of questions, and it's a huge topic. But before we go into it any further, what do you mean by monoculture, and why does nature abhor it? So, uh, <clears throat> one of the great travesties is the way that my father's generation and my generation industrialized food production. We started operating farms as a factory instead of a biome, very linear instead of being very uh, uh, circular. So the uh, uh, you know in nature uh, there is no monoculture. There's many different species of microbes and plants and animals all living together in a symbiotic relationship. That's a biome. Uh, the uh, a, a factory farm is one in which we had desk, uh, embraced industrial models. You raise pigs in the pig factory like you make cars in the car factory. Raise chickens in the chicken factory like you make shirts in the shirt factory. That's a monoculture. It's very linear, and it, 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 you lose all of the symbiosis, which is one species uh, benefiting from another. Yeah, gotcha. In a, in a natural Involved. Very good. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Marty, you've actually been to Will's operation, uh, his farm in Georgia. What was your experience like there? I, I hear it's it's pretty special. Well, it's a fantastic place, Joe. And, you know, Will's down in South Georgia and I'm from South Alabama. And we're pretty sure that like all of the terrific animals on his farm, we share some of the same wonderful genes. So, you know, it was great to go down there the couple of times I've been and spend several days. He has production of chickens down to a tea, beef. I think I've had some of the best beef I've ever eaten in my life from Will's that I actually can buy in a Whole Foods in Washington, D.C. here and uh, have a New York strip every Sunday night. But when you go to Will's farm, you see exactly what he's talking about, that his farm is teeming with life. There are free-range chickens. There are beef cattle. I know there are hogs that he imported from Spain. He's got a tremendous operation. And if there's any place on the planet that I've seen and been to that I can tell people that they should go buy their products from, it would be White Oak Pastures in Bluffton, Georgia. So I can't thank him enough for doing all that he's done to bring sustainable agriculture back to this country. And I think that it's a great place to visit if you just want to go see what farming is really about. You know, one of the really interesting things that we ought to bring up on this is Will has had a problem with bald eagles. And I think he said in 150 years, he had never seen a bald eagle until he brought back free range chickens to his farm. And so I think that's an indicator of how some of the wildlife that's dying off in our country has actually come to the point they have. So maybe Will can elaborate on that further into the podcast. 
Well, that's that's the, you, you summed it up very well. Uh, you know, I'm uh, I'm 65. I've lived on this farm all my life. I've never seen a bald eagle on my farm or near my farm. And I'm pretty sure my father, who was born in 1920, uh, had never seen one either. Uh, when we put or uh, started raising chickens truly out on the pasture, uh, we started. We saw the first bald eagle about uh, 18 months after we put the first birds down on the pasture. Uh, since then, they've increased and increased and increased, and actually are a a production problem. Um, it's it's okay, I call it tithing to nature. We accept some loss of, of, the, uh, of the, the birds that we put down. We, we really enjoy seeing the eagles. The economic part is not much fun, but we do. Uh, and and it, it reinforces what we believe about uh, natural systems and, bi- and the biome. If you want to see more about what goes on down there, you can go to White Oak Pastures. Dot com and uh, gosh well you got a store you've got lodging uh, you know add a couple of roller coasters and, and you've got Will Harris World just like Dolly World it's a, it's a, there's a lot of moving parts you know, I tell people that that we're in the most simple business in the world we own land we own animals they breed they grow we slaughter them sell the meat and poultry to monetize the operation so we can go again. It's one step above hunter-gatherer. But at the same time, it's, there's a lot of complexity to it. And uh, we are the largest private employer in the poorest county in Georgia, which is something we're real proud of. We, we write payroll checks for about $100,000 every Friday. And uh, Bluffton has a population of a little over 100. So. Wow. Uh, we're very proud of the economic impact as well as the ecological impact. Uh, I bet you are. One of the photos I'm seeing right now just shows uh, uh, oodles. What do you call a group of chickens? Are they a flock? Yeah, yeah. So like a bunch of chickens just walking around there uh, with, with cows. It's it's really pretty cool. So uh, whiteoakpastures.com is where folks can read and see more. Uh, Wayne, uh, give us kind of a background, if you would, please, sir, on what is happening with our supply chain. Why are farmers, big ag farmers, I'm presuming more so than, than others, why are they having to slaughter hundreds of thousands of animals even at a time when I think you say uh, we are sending more meat than ever overseas. What's, what's up with that? Well, let me just say that I'm, I'm delighted that Will has joined us. Uh, he is just a remarkable spokesperson for agriculture in the United States. His voice needs to be amplified, and I'm so glad we've got him on the Animal Wellness Podcast. You know, he is a, uh, a counter to this industrial model that really has – been a race to the bottom uh, in the United States, paying workers uh, very little, putting them in dangerous uh, living conditions, uh, mistreating animals, treating them just like things rather than living beings, uh, driving down the price of meat so people just think that it lands in their in their store or on their plate without any artisanal activity. And what's happening now, of course, is these slaughter plants, which have been consolidated by the four big uh, packing companies in the United States, Smithfield, Cargill, uh, Tyson, uh, JBS, own 80% basically of the slaughtering 
production for for pork and and beef in the United States. And this has made our food supply very vulnerable. So when we have a COVID crisis with a highly infectious uh, contagion, these places where where the workers, almost all first-generation people have been working shoulder to shoulder, they're getting sick in extraordinary numbers. And many of them have been shuttered. At one plant in eastern Iowa, a Tyson plant, more than 1,000 workers were sickened uh, by COVID-19. This has hurt supply. And if you're talking about pig production, there's a very narrow window for sending those uh, pigs to slaughter. They get to a market weight of 260, 270 pounds, and they've got that window. And if the plants shut down, it creates a dilemma for the industrial farmers who are raising these animals. You know, 115 million a year are sent to slaughter in the United States. And, you know, we just declared the meat industry, the United States government did, an essential industry ordering these workers back. And the reality is Reuters just looked at some of the uh, export data. And on, starting on March 15th, which was about the time that COVID-19 began to exert its impact in the United States, we have quadrupled our exports of pork to China. So here we have the media and government officials essentially saying, we have a meat shortage. Tyson's CEO wrote in the New York Times and the Washington Post and full page ad that we've got a crisis. We're going to have prices up. We, we won't be able to provide enough meat for people, yet we've quadrupled our exports to China. I mean, something is badly wrong with this picture. And I think it's a manufactured crisis. I think it's a crisis for animals and for workers that has been created because of the inhumane methods that have been tailored uh, in this industrial agriculture era. You know, we as a nation have done very, very well indeed in terms of of uh, producing food and and feeding people. But how we produce that food matters. It matters for the animals, it matters for the land, it matters for workers. And we have forgotten about the values that we are supposed to care about. And I think what's remarkable about Will and his operation is that he is showing the way. He's producing in considerable volume with great diversity in terms of his output And he's doing it in a way that is sensitive to animals, that is good for the land, good for his community. People aren't being put at risk by his operation. I've been a vegan a long time, but I have a very big tent view of animal welfare. I consider Will Harris as important an animal welfare advocate as the most committed vegan out there. Uh, We have to all be part of this discussion about animal welfare Our country is not going to stop eating meat, consuming eggs, and drinking milk, uh, certainly not in the short run. And my God, how much better is it for the animals to live outside and have a decent life at a place like Will Harris's uh, farm? Well, let me ask you, right? So if we had more farms, let's say we went to a large percentage of beef in the U.S. produced by operations from yours. What about the argument that says, well, at that juncture, meat becomes so expensive that the poor people, you know, poor people can't get it. Uh, it becomes a wealthier person's privilege to eat meat. Is there any validation to that? Well, I think you, I think you brought up 
two topics there that, that have to be separated. Uh, one topic is that if, you, if farmers like me give up all of the tools that reductionist science has given us to take cost out of production, it will add cost back to production. That's, that's, just, that's, that's just basic arithmetic. So yes, if meat, were, meat and poultry was raised in a manner that was good for the land, good for the welfare of the animals, and good for the rural community, the price of it would go up some. That's, that's, that's just the way it is. The other uh, question you brought up was about poor people getting that meat. And that is a matter of economic disparity. And you can't put those two together. You know, when I uh, ship a truckload of ground beef, I would like to think that people in nursing homes and hospitals and schools were, that's where it was going, but the fact is it's not. It's more likely going to Whole Foods. Uh, that's not a production issue. That's an economic disparity issue. Something needs to be done to make uh, good food available for people who uh, struggle economically. But that's a separate issue from the production of the food. From the production perspective, we have made the, the centralization, commoditization, and, and industrialization is made, it was done for noble purposes. It was done to make food uh, cheap and abundant and safe. And it was wildly successful in that it made food obscenely cheap and wastefully abundant and boringly consistent. And the unintended consequence of that fell on the backs of the welfare of the animals and the degradation of our land and air and water and the impoverishment of rural America. So that I'm in charge of fixing that. You fellows handled that economic disparity. I can't do that. That's a bit of my playground. One thing that's happened during this period of industrialization is not only have we dramatically consolidated slaughtering operations to the point where you know, four companies are, are controlling 80% of meatpacking uh, in the United States. We have seen an incredible attrition. I mean, it's really not attrition. It's, it's wholesale removal uh, from rural communities of farmers. More than 90% of pig farmers since 19, mid-1970s are, are gone. Uh, the same for the dairy industry, uh, the same for the egg-laying hen industry, only the cattle industry has this been less acute, uh, but there's been a dramatic drop in the number of people raising cattle as well. I mean, why is that a win for the, the people promoting industrial agriculture? And I think, you know, while, while we have a big debate in our society on what's the most humane, sustainable form of agriculture, there's no question that if you have more humane-minded farmers raising fewer animals, where people are paying more attention to the product that they're consuming, where they are valuing the farmer for his or her skills in producing that animal. You're gonna have more animal care. More animal care in the form of more farmers, fewer animals who are better treated. That is more of the vision that I think animal advocates sh should be espousing. Uh, and this industrial model that has, that has done so much damage to animals and rural communities, it's, it's, a, it's an odd circumstance that the animal advocates and, and the family farmers are, are the biggest advocates for rural America in this respect, because the industrial production model 
has not been a boon for those for those parts of the United States. Yeah, I believe it's the case that if you look at all professions, the family farmer these days has the highest suicide rate owing to the pressure uh, not only to hold on to their farms, but to the extent to which they uh, sell to the large industrialized operation. The pressure to keep costs down is driving many of them to the brink and over the brink of despair. Hey, Joe, it's Marty. I wanted to add something just, you know, what I was talking about in the opening, and, and I eat a, a New York strip from Will's Farm typically every Sunday night. A lot of people uh, can't afford to eat a New York strip every night, but they might have one once a week or twice a week, and I probably pay about 12 or $13 for a pretty big size steak that's a, a wonderful cut of meat. And when we're talking about our society, we have a society where obesity has come to an all-time high, so that's another issue that's tied to this. And then in addition to that, Will, went, Will mentioned the waste. When you go to Will Harris's farm, you'll see he's got a beautiful general store. And you go in that general store, you go to his website, and you'll see that every part of that animal is used. The tracheas are used as dog treats. You can buy chicken feet as dog treats. I know he's making humane leather now at this point. Uh, they use the talum there for the soap. So every bit of that animal is utilized and not wasted. And we need more farms that are doing exactly what he's doing. And even some of the more humane and sustainable farms aren't utilizing every part of that animal like Will is. Will, do you believe that the entire experience of COVID-19, as it has impacted uh, animal husbandry, is it better for your side of the equation where we treat animals better? Or is this ultimately going to be a boon for the industrialized method? I, I can't predict the future, but I can tell you that thus far, uh, this pandemic has been good for our business. I, I hesitate to say that with people losing life and health and economic ruin, but the fact is, uh, the impact it's had on us is our food service business to restaurants has gone away. We just don't have that anymore. But we didn't have a tremendous amount of it starting with. Our online business has absolutely exploded. Uh, we have had a 500% increase in uh, online orders. We do our own order fulfillment from the farm. And uh, it has absolutely uh, been, been a, boon, a boon for us. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll say this, uh, you know, two or three times we've gotten to the, right up to the edge of the question, how do we um, have more of more of our farm production move towards high animal welfare, high regenerative land management, and rebuilding rural America. And the answer is not regulation from the State House or Washington, D.C. That won't do it. The answer is not big companies decide that that's the right thing to do. That's not going to happen. The answer is not farmers deciding, wow, we ought to do it differently. That's not going to happen. If it happens, it'll be because consumers demand it. And I hope that this huge influx of new customers that we've had will stay with us, it's a high percentage of them. I'm hoping that what this horrible pandemic has done is show them the fragility of the food chain that feeds them and uh, a lot of us have, have recognized for a long time that 
there's a, a, a very little bit of resilience, very little resilience in the food chain. You know, the, uh, the grass-fed beef that you see in stores, 90% uh, of it comes from 10,000 miles away. 10,000 miles to New Zealand or Australia. And that's not a resilient food chain. Uh, here, here on the farm, we raise animals. We have our own slaughterhouse, USDA inspected slaughterhouse. We slaughter them on the farm. And then we do our own order fulfillment through FedEx or UPS. And what that means is white oak pastures is not part of a supply chain. White oak pastures is a supply chain. And it's got a lot of resilience. Wayne, um, talk us through the life of a factory farmed cow. And then, Will, I want to ask you, having heard what Wayne says, which I, I know you know the answer to this just as well, but to hear Wayne tell it and then tell us about the life of a cow that uh, begins and ends uh, his journey on your farm. Wayne? Well, you know, the, the cattle have it best, I think, among the animals in American agriculture. I mean, those animals are living for a good portion of their lives in extensive systems. Now, in terms of industrial production, they're fed corn and not grass uh, for a large portion of their life, and uh, certainly when they move to, to a feedlot. And, you know, I've been to feedlots and, you know, these animals are, you know, in Nebraska or in Kansas, there is no shade, there are no trees, there is no shelter for these animals. The, the ground has turned to, you know, a form of concrete in some ways, it seems. And, you know, they spray the animals with these industrial hoses to try to keep them a little bit cool. But the temperature, you know, is way up there. I mean, they're not living on grass. Uh, and then, as Will said, you know, they're, they're shipped somewhere. They're jammed into a truck, and they go to one of the, the big packing houses. The number of those packing houses has declined as consolidation uh, has occurred. A good number of them operate 24 hours a day. But that contrasts favorably <laughs> with, with what happens with pigs, you know, who were basically raised indoors. The laying hens are all indoors, except for the small, you know, percentage of those that are on operations like Will's or approximating that. The broiler chickens, I mean, one of the incredible things about them is they grow so fast. We have selectively bred them for fast growth. They're typically slaughtered at six to seven weeks of age, and they grow to be much bigger than chickens ever were, were slaughtered 20, 30, 50, 75 years ago. Uh, they have heart attacks. They have uh, mobility problems. Uh, many of them are, are crippled at, at two or three weeks of age. And it's quite remarkable that we have bred them for one characteristic, fast growth and the related elements of, of uh, muscle and body mass. And we've forgotten about the health of the entire organism. And, you know, that, uh, I mean, maybe that's a lead in, Will, for you to pick up about the, the types of breeds that you have. You're breeding for healthier animals. It's not just the physical environment and access to pasture, but it's living in a body that allows animals to move and to, and to be healthy. I'm going to do a good job uh, explaining the life of, uh, of an industrial confinement animal. There's a lot could be said about the differences in what uh, I used to do, which by the way, uh, I, I, my, part of my dirty little secret is I was an industrial cattleman for 20 years. 
uh, and there's a lot can be said about the difference then and now. From an animal welfare perspective, I used to think that good animal welfare meant that I kept them fed and watered and in a comfortable temperature range and didn't intentionally inflict pain and suffering. And if I did that, that was pretty good animal welfare. About 25 years ago, I decided that that is not enough, that it's also incumbent upon me as the stockman to provide the animals uh, with the opportunity to express instinctive behavior. Chickens need to scratch and peck, hogs need to root and wallow, cows need to roam and graze. That's instinctive behaviors. And they long, they literally long to do that when they're held in confinement, and, but they're not allowed to. And it's very efficient from a time money perspective, but it's not good animal welfare. So we, we could talk a lot about that and the impact on the land and the community, but let me use this opportunity that we're in to put it in a really good perspective for you. Uh, as I said, I built a uh, own farm, red meat slaughter plant and an own farm poultry slaughter plant. Very low volume as compared to the industrial model. Uh, we have 160 employees on this farm total. We've had three uh, positive tests for coronavirus, so it can happen to me too, but my three out of 160 is way below the county average. Uh, it's possible that I could have to suspend the operation of my slaughter operation. I hope not, and I don't think I will, because my numbers, we were doing a lot of stuff to prevent employee illness, but it could happen. Now, if it did happen, my animals would be fine. They'll be fine. We raise cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, and poultry, five poultry species, and all of them are out on the pasture. And if we don't slaughter them on the day they were scheduled to be slaughtered, they'll just keep doing what they've been doing. You know, a confinement industrial animal is dying of all the diseases of obesity and a sedentary lifestyle that's killing most of us humans. That's simply not the case on my farm and other farms like mine. I don't want to sound like I'm the only guy in the country doing it correct. You got Gabe Brown in North Dakota and Greg Gunthorpe in Indiana, and I can name you a dozen more. But our animals will live a normal expected life expectancy for their species because they're in a natural environment doing what they're supposed to do. There's none of that six or seven week chicken slaughter that Wayne said. It takes us 12 weeks, 12 weeks, and we'll only wind up with a three pound bird instead of that five pound bird that the industrial model gets in six or seven weeks. Fascinating. Marty, is there any legislation uh, impacting this issue, or uh, what do you see on the Hill? You're our capital guru. Uh, what do you know of what's happening or being discussed up there in D.C.? Well, there are a few things. You know, first, on the regulatory side, I know that USDA, it looks like, is uh, actually finalizing the organic standards regulation that we all worked on so hard a few years ago that would um, enable that label to match up more with what people actually uh, think that it is. It's actually 
uh, a little incorrect when you think that you go buy something organic that it has actually been out free range on a farm and that's not necessarily the case. Another thing is that there is the Opportunities for Fairness in Farming Act that we discussed on a previous episode with Mike Eby related to the USDA checkoff programs and those checkoff programs that are putting all of this money into lobbying for industrial agriculture and lobbying for all of the Farm Bureau policies and other major industrial agricultural groups views um, is, is going to, we believe in some time, help curb that. There is another piece of legislation. I just had an email today someone was asking about and I, I the name leaves me, but um, it does deal with uh, working on a moratorium on CAFOs, which are the large confined animal feeding operations that we've been discussing in factory farming. So there are some initiatives. I know that Wayne uh, may wanna add more about the PIGS Act that we will be working on and introducing here in the near future as well. Yeah, and that episode is um, episode number six called Checkoffs and the Abuse of Animals. Should any folks interested in this topic care to go back and listen to that episode? Wayne? Yeah, Cory Booker, Senator from New Jersey, has introduced uh, legislation to impose a moratorium on the biggest factory farms in the U.S. and facing them out entirely uh, by 2040. Uh, Marty's correct that this checkoff program is an abuse that farmers are essentially paying a tax and that money goes into a federal kitty and that kitty is, is supposed to be promoting, uh, the, the commodity, uh, that, that the, that the farmers are producing. Uh, the reality is it's being used by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the National Pork Producers Council to fight uh, legislation like Senator Booker's or to block any farm animal welfare legislation. You know, Will said earlier on our on our show that, you know, he says this is up to the consumers and, and he's right. No no question about that. I do hope one day that we have some reasonable standards of care for animals in in agriculture. Right now there's none of it because the big trade associations have blocked any concern for farm animals. And it's been left entirely to the consumer. And the consumer should not have any confidence unless he or she knows where that animal is being raised and who is raising the animal, that the standards are aligned with their own value system, the consumer's value system. I mean, you can look at Will, you can see what he does, and you can bank on his reputation and his performance. You cannot do that with this meat that's coming from these factory farms. I mean, there are no standards. The one metric they care about is productivity. Productivity does not equate with animal welfare. You can have an animal living in a terrible circumstance, but the animal remains alive and productive. People can reproduce and they can grow even if they're living in terrible circumstances. And that's what happens with animals. But the industrial farmer will tell you that productivity equals animal welfare. That's a falsehood. Why are we, I want to circle back to something that came up earlier in the show. Why are we sending more meat to China right now? Trade deals, what's the reason that while American consumers are struggling to keep their refrigerators full, we are sending things so far away from home? The United States uh, agribusiness model, the factory farm model, more and more depends on, on exports. I mean, they're producing so much in the way of inexpensively produced food in terms of the 
price in the marketplace. There are all these externalities where the costs are borne by our society in terms of our healthcare system, in terms of property values being degraded if you happen to live near a factory farm. Obviously, the overuse of antibiotics is a terrible threat to our public health. So many, so many problems. But China has 1.4 billion people, and pork is the predominant form of, of animal protein that they consume. And they don't have enough land to produce this, this much meat. And they are treating the United States as a factory farm colony. And we are obliging because our U.S. trade policy is built around that. And you have the, the pandering and the lobbying of the National Pork Producers Council and the other trade associations that demand this. And we're the ones here in the United States that deal with all the waste that comes from these industrialized farms, all the antibiotic-resistant bacteria, all the animal cruelty, all the loss of rural communities as the family farmers are driven off the land, all of these COVID-19 cases concentrated at these huge industrial slaughter plants. And China's, you know, sitting fat and happy in, in this regard. We deal with the consequences and they get the meat. So this has been part of U.S. government policy for years, and it's continuing now. And with all the rhetoric that we're down on China and we want this to change, the, the behavior suggests otherwise. And that's because we don't want to jeopardize future sales to China by curtailing our deliveries to them now. Uh, is that the natural next step in this undertaking? Well, I think, I think it's, and I'd be interested in Will's view on this, but I mean, I think it's just the pleading of these industrial uh, agriculture trade associations and the lamentations about the effect on the farmer when they don't really demonstrate an actual concern because we've seen this incredible erosion in the number of farmers, people losing their jobs left and right if you're in agriculture, but they're crying crocodile tears over it. And the money's going to the, to the large industrial producers, to the Smithfields, which is a Chinese-owned company, to JBS, a Brazilian-owned company. And they're buying up our farmland in the United States, and they're buying up our animals. I don't think that the Chinese bought Smithfield so the Chinese could not get pork when they wanted it. You know, that's part of this decentralization that <clears throat> the meat business has uh, gone so far in the, in the direction of uh, the, the policies and rules are written so that these multinational companies can shop for the cheapest product in the world and sell it in the highest market in the world. And you just follow the money to see where that is. It's not valuing the farmer, right? So, so Will and his team are actually farming. They know something about animals. You know, I, I've been to industrial broiler uh, bird operations. I've been to industrial egg-laying hen operations. I've been to uh, major pork farms. You don't even see people around. I mean, there are, there are a handful of people around. The animals are on their own. You know, they're, they're jammed into cages or, and, and crates or into warehouses, and they give them food and water, and they attempt to control the temperature so it's within a livable range. But heck, you know, something goes wrong, a fire breaks out, and I mean, hundreds of thousands of animals can die. A tornado hits one of these places, same consequence. COVID hits and the slaughterhouse is shut down. I mean, this is a highly vulnerable food production system. I mean, as, as Will is saying, when animals are outside and they're on large acreage, 
they can not only have a life, but the whole system is much more resilient. It's safer. This system is highly vulnerable as it's constructed right now. We're dependent on a few companies producing an enormous volume of animal product and slaughtering and distributing that product. When those, when those chains break down, we get the supposed crisis, but it's not as much of a crisis as they're saying because the meat is flowing to China in huge volumes right now. And the rules are written to make that uh, so 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 easy. Uh, the the uh, USDA has, uh, uh, in accordance with USDA rules, it's perfectly legal to raise animals in Argentina, uh, Australia, or New Zealand or Uruguay, slaughter them there, bring them to the United States in a container and sell the meat as product of USA. Because if any value addition is done here, it can be labeled product of the USA. We had a number of years in which we had the country of origin, mandatory country of origin labeling. And during that window, the, the meat had to be labeled uh, as, as the country it came from. But uh, due to lobbyists, big business interest, that went away, it was costing them too much money and now it's perfectly legal to bring this product in and the shopper at whatever grocery store sees product of the USA on the label. Marty. Hey, Marty, I just wanted to add something on country of origin labeling. I know Will and I have talked a lot about this. I worked in Congress when they repealed country of origin labeling and the majority of the members of Congress didn't even know what they were voting on. All they heard was the messaging from big agriculture that there would be several billion dollars in fines from trade violations with with uh, Canada and Mexico. And so that's all they heard. They didn't even bother to think about the consequences of what was going to occur from that point forward. And I do believe there's also an effort for rulemaking to hopefully make some changes in um, the packaging aspects of uh, this meat that's sold as and billed as American made when it's not. Wayne, let's uh, get some closing thoughts uh, from you on this, please. Well, you know, I think we've got a broken food system. In terms of working right, it's a, it's a handful, relative handful of operations like Will Harris's who are, who are showing uh, a different, better, sustainable, humane, resilient way forward. And I can't think of anything more important from an animal welfare perspective than our consumer choices. I mean, the largest category of animals used in our society are, are, are raised for meat. We raise 9 billion animals a year in the United States. We all need to be thinking about our food choices. We should not have any confidence that the government is creating a regulatory system that is safeguarding the animals. There are no federal protections for any of these animals. There's a Humane Methods and Slaughter Act that, that deals with, uh, with, with mammals only, not with poultry. And... Uh, and even then, it's, it's problematic. So I think we have to all think about what our responsibilities to, our, to animals are. And it starts with the choices we make with our, our daily food choices. And I, I'm so glad that Will Harris is part of this discussion because, you know, it's not just veganism and steering clear that it's an option. If people want to eat meat, there are options where the animal does not suffer uh, and live in misery day after day. 
Um, and Will Harris and a number of other farmers are, are showing that alternative method. And that's working, right? It's not only working as a profitable business for Will and others, but it's also working for communities. And uh, I, I think that this whole agricultural system that we have developed has been a miracle in terms of production, uh, but we have forgotten the other values that we hold so dear in our country. Thanks, Wayne. Well, uh, final thoughts from you, sir. My closing comments mirror Wayne's exactly. You know, Wendell Berry was a role model of mine, and he says something to the effect that consumers vote with their dollar on uh, how they want the world to be. And truly, I think that most good-thinking, rational people would like to support a system that has high animal welfare, high levels of regenerative land management, uh, high levels of uh, concern for enriching rural America. But due to greenwashing of industrially produced products by large multinational companies, consumers are confused. And if these consumers want a better place, they're going to have to go to the trouble of educating themselves a little bit about what program they're supporting when they spend their food dollar. Thanks, Will. And I want to remind everyone, too, you can learn more about Will and his White Oak Pastures at whiteoakpastures.com. You'll find um, uh, ways to order his product there. And if it's as good as Marty says it is, and Marty knows the snakes, folks, let me tell you, uh, you'll you'll want to uh, check it out. And I want to say thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in to the Animal Wellness Podcast. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org for all our news and information and to sign up for our news alerts. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we invite you to subscribe to this podcast through iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Grove, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.